I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on September 10th, 2021. Episode 35, The Recall of California's Governor. What is the role of recalls in our system? How do they work? How did this recall effort start? And what happens now? From the inception of the country in the various states, procedures were put in place to allow voters or other officials to express their dissatisfaction with, and possibly to remove, elected and other officials. In large part, the provision of a recall process is an acceptance that our elected officials are put into office, not to vote their own conscience, but to vote as a representative of the voters who elected that person. The answer to that debate as to the proper role of elected officials is still a debated topic, as it was among our nation's founders. Prior to creation of the United States, Massachusetts provided for the recall of officials and also found its way into the constitutions of some of the states following the Declaration of Independence. But the recall process was not originally one instigated by voters, but by other elected officials or entities. And the concept of a recall found its way into the first attempt at structuring a new country in the Articles of Confederation. One of the very issues that pit the Federalists against the Anti-Federalists in the public debate about whether to adopt the newly drafted Constitution was its failure to include recall power for the states for some federal officials, specifically for U.S. Senators. This makes sense when you remember that at that time those officials were appointed by their states until later amendment of the Constitution had us directly elect our senators. Some, including Luther Martin, argued that since the method of selection of senators was not by election by the people, and they could not be recalled by the respective states, they were subject to no real democratic control. He said this, Thus, sir, for six years, the senators are rendered totally and absolutely independent of their states, of whom they ought to be the representatives, without any bond or tie between them. But Alexander Hamilton did not view a system where senators were essentially controlled by their states as preferable, though the Anti-Federalists raised a good point related to how senators may actually serve if they did not have any need to respect those from whom they gained their authority. Hamilton was more concerned with those holding the office of senator, making decisions that were best for the new union, and in taking that position, he explained. 
In whatever body the power of recall is vested, the senator will perpetually feel himself in such a state of vassalage and dependence that he never can possess that firmness which is necessary to the discharge of his great duty to the Union. So, instead of recall, the Constitution chose impeachment, using a procedure that requires much more than mere dissatisfaction, or at least should require more than mere dissatisfaction, with an officeholder's policy decisions, before removal can be contemplated. Even after initial ratification of the Constitution, at least one state, Rhode Island, proposed an amendment that would have added the ability to recall senators. That amendment was not adopted, but many states did opt to have recall as an available process for their own state officials. Today, 19 states in the District of Columbia provide for some type of recall for state officials, with even more allowing for recall of local officials. Recall thus was and has remained more common at the local level, often involving recall attempts of the likes of school board officials or city or county council members. And recent years have actually seen more of a push for additional states to add recall processes for state and local officials in their states, with a number of pieces of legislation proposed to add that option for voters. Recall is not the same as impeachment. Recall is totally voter-driven. At this point, though many attempts to recall state governors have been undertaken, only four have reached the point of submitting sufficient voter signatures to trigger an actual recall election. This includes the 2003 recall of California Governor Gray Davis, who was then replaced with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Recall of state legislators occurs and is successful much more frequently than the recall of governors. The recall process generally involves the collection of a minimum number of voter signatures before an actual election will be scheduled. During such an election, voters will typically vote on whether to recall the official and, if recall is successful, on a replacement. These votes are taken at the same time. Eight states do require that the reason for a recall petition be one of a specific set of grounds listed in the state constitution or statutes for undertaking this kind of removal. California is a state providing for recall of its state officials, and a specific reason isn't necessarily required. Article 2 of the California Constitution provides for a recall, allowing the recall of elected officers specifically. Section 13 of that article provides, Recall is the power of the electors to remove an elective officer. In order for the electors, here the voters in California, to initiate the recall process, a petition setting out a reason for the recall must be submitted to the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State, however, has no authority to question the reasons, with the state constitution clearly stating, quote, sufficiency of the reason is not reviewable. Rather, the Secretary of State serves merely to review the petition and the signatures affixed to it to ensure it contains valid signatures of voters and that it contains a sufficient number of such signatures. A single voter, for example, cannot initiate a recall. In order for the recall process to be started for a statewide office in California, there must be signatures on the petition of at least 12% of the number of voters who voted in the last election for that office. What that meant for the 2020 recall effort related to California's Governor Gavin Newsom was that just under 1.5 million signatures were needed in order to start the election recall process. Organizers of the recall effort submitted more than 2 million, many of which were rejected by the Secretary of State, but in the end, more than 1.7 million signatures were verified and the recall process was officially begun. This will only be the second recall of a California governor since the most recent recall procedures were put in place in 1911. Once the process is started, a day for the recall vote is set and a process for potential replacement candidates for the office is then underway. At the time of the recall, voters will answer two questions. 
The first will be whether Governor Newsom should be recalled. The second will list all qualified replacement candidates, and voters may select one such candidate to replace the governor. All voters can answer both questions. In other words, a voter can vote no on the recall, but still select a replacement candidate in the event other voters are more than sufficient to recall the governor. The replacement candidate with the most votes would replace Governor Newsom if more than 50% of voters vote yes on the recall. Voters can opt to answer or vote on both questions or only one. For this recall election, every active registered voter in the state of California was mailed a ballot that can be returned by mail, and that process is well underway in the state. Though exactly who signed the petition for recall, one thing is clear, voters on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, did sign. And as the election grows closer, what is more evident than ever is that there is more support for this recall than first believed, and that the reasons for dissatisfaction with California's current governor run from issues related to COVID-19 shutdowns, to suspension of the death penalty, to issues related to affordable housing, and taxes, and that these issues motivated a significant number of California voters to want a chance to remove their governor before expiration of his current term, which is set to end January 2, 2023. So what has Governor Newsom done or not done during his time in office that may have triggered this lack of confidence in his leadership so quickly after he won overwhelming support in his election to this post in 2018, where he garnered nearly 62% of the vote? Many initially attributed the cries to recall Governor Gavin Newsom merely a result of the hardships suffered as the pandemic swept the nation, including the state of California. It was also claimed that the recall effort was merely a minority of Republicans with little chance of success. But trouble was brewing for Governor Newsom long before the entry of COVID-19. California is far from the sunny paradise it once was. It has the highest poverty and income tax rates in the nation. Its students are failing, and there are falling graduation rates. It has half the country's homeless population and such rampant crime that most misdemeanors won't even lead to an arrest or investigation at all and the situation has only worsened under Gavin Newsom's administration. California has begun to suffer more and more rolling, and in some cases, complete blackouts. Despite the governor's and others' claims that California is a model for green energy, its ability to provide sufficient power for the needs of its residents is lacking. Solar power plays a role in energy production, and nowhere more so than in California, where the state relies heavily on this alternate energy source. The problem is that solar generation doesn't occur at night, and thus Californians often find themselves demanding more energy than is being produced or was stored during the day day sunlight hours. In other words, as currently structured, and shifting heavily to renewable energy sources has left California unable to power itself. This is, as those who mounted the recall effort, a self-imposed energy crisis, a crisis that could be avoided but has not been avoided by the governor. The same environmental concerns that supposedly drive the state's push toward more and more green energy also has prevented it, with the governor's support, from taking advantage of what has actually been a century where the state has received more rainfall than in prior centuries, possibly more rainfall than in the past 7,000 years. Yet despite this increase in available water, environmental concerns stopped the governor from consenting to construct water storage facilities that could have held excess water during the rainy season for use at drier times. As a result, the rainiest century in thousands of years still, due to bad policy decisions, leaves the state's residents without adequate water and extreme water use restrictions. And if limited water and energy are not enough, the state under Governor Newsom's leadership has found itself battling some of the worst wildfires. 
the recent wildfire losses, both of habitat and structures, are not merely a result of climate change, but also exemplify what happens when leaders in states like California fail to undertake proper forest management. The governor has even admitted that the state's forest management has been plagued by bad past practices, but he fails to take any responsibility for attempting to address those bad practices, allowing them to continue and to continue to result in out-of-control wildfires that threaten the health, safety, property, and livelihoods of Californians on a regular basis. Even in the pre-pandemic era of Newsom's administration, he failed California. The financial condition of the state is abysmal, and uncontrolled debt and crumbling infrastructure remain significant problems. Crime is increased under his watch, whether that is a result of the governor's halting of executions, limitations he has supported on the practices of law enforcement, or the closure of some of the state's prisons. Increasing crime does not make voters happy, and is one of the issues we properly look to government to address, or at least to be part of the solution. His other policies appear to involve almost always increased spending and expansion of government programs, even to those who are in the country illegally. As California's budget increases, with Governor Newsom's budget being the largest in state history, its poverty level remains high, and the state remains plagued by an affordable housing shortage that looks only to worsen. The pandemic only opened the door for Governor Newsom to make more bad decisions that ultimately led to millions of people willing to sign the recall petition. California's COVID-19 policies, led by the governor, have resulted in the shuttering of innumerable businesses, the decline in education of the state's children, a scandal involving the state's Employment Development Department, which is under the control of the governor, and a failed vaccine distribution plan. Perhaps most costly to the governor, in terms of support of the people, was his willingness to close businesses and lock down the free movement of residents while he continued to enjoy fine dining experiences with others at the likes of the French Laundry restaurant in Napa. This dinner party, possibly more than anything else, highlighted the governor's perceived lack of concern for those suffering under his very policies. It is at this dinner that Governor Newsom was seen and photographed, maskless, and enjoying himself at a dinner party at a restaurant known to cost, on average, more than $300 per person. This is not the vision of a governor who understands the plight of those he governs. To add insult to injury, the suspicious timing of the governor's decision to reopen restaurants to the common man, a decision made just days after President Biden was inaugurated, led to claims that are likely true that the policy decisions related to COVID-19 were not for the safety of California's residents, but were as much political as they were for health and safety. As summarized by one of the key players in the recall effort, Tom Del Bacaro, California needs a leader who collaborates with residents instead of dictating to them as he flouts his own COVID-19 rules. And as the pandemic seemingly raged on, Governor Gavin Newsom issued more executive orders in a single year than any other governor in recent history. All of these orders, nearly 60 of which related to the pandemic, with the stroke of a pen and no democratic or legislative process, affected the daily lives of millions. All the while, his administration ignored requests for public records related to the actual COVID-19 numbers in the state. The reason for not providing the requested documents was that the data was just too confusing to release to the public. The hubris of this type of government response is shocking. His refusal to consider how his policies actually play out for everyday people may be enough to end his time in office. But who may replace him, and what does that mean for California and for the rest of the country? A number of individuals have completed the necessary procedures to be included in the September 14th recall vote. The best-known candidates include Caitlin, formerly Bruce Jenner, 
Larry Elder, John Koss, and Kevin Falconer. But there are a total of 46 names on the ballot. Current polling demonstrates that it is still an uphill battle for those seeking to remove the current governor. But it is not a sure thing how this vote will turn out. And the governor may have done himself no favors in taking steps to block any well-known Democrats from being candidates on the ballot should recall be successful. In other words, it is likely to be either keep Governor Newsom or welcome in a new Republican governor of California. Polling in the most recent week shows a range of 36 to 51 percent of those polled favoring recall of Governor Newsom. These polls are starting to trend in favor of Newsom, as polling in early August showed nearly a 50-50 split on whether to remove the government in most polls, and most recent polling shows him much further ahead. But we have also learned not to trust polling. Recalling a governor is a difficult and rare endeavor, having only been elected less than three years ago, and overwhelmingly so, for the tide to turn so dramatically, even if recall is not ultimately successful, is a warning sign to those in government who fail carefully to consider their policy positions and who demonstrate a willingness to be controlled by a clear and extreme political agenda in the way Newsom has been seemingly controlled by environmentalists and self-proclaimed progressives in his party. A look at the issues focused on by the replacement candidates provides further instruction as to the frustrations Californians, at least some of them, have with the current condition of their state. Consistent among most of the Republican candidates is a desire to end the pandemic's state of emergency and to begin to reopen the state more fully, to include businesses and schools. In addition, calls to lessen the tax burden on the state's residents, to address the growing and unacceptable homeless crisis and related affordable housing shortages, along with controlling crime and better management of the state's resources, are all issues resounding with voters. Polling is always questionable. The timing of any given poll, exactly how a poll question is asked, how large the pool of people included is, and who actually responded to a poll can skew or explain the results. And as polling gets closer to September 14th, the recall election date, it's hard to value given that the election allows for mail-in ballots and the state reports quite a lot of ballots have already been received. That fact, combined with the availability in some polling locations for in-person early voting, makes it harder to determine what the result may be, as some of the people being polled may have already voted, or maybe they haven't, and can still change their minds. In July, the numbers related to the recall of Governor Newsom demonstrated a clear lead for the governor to survive this recall attempt. By early August, voters appear to have been equally split on whether the governor should be allowed to serve out the rest of his term or should be removed. As the election gets closer, however, polling again seems to favor Governor Newsom. But despite the increasing polling support for the governor, it is clear that his survival is not only not a sure thing, but is a serious concern for the entire Democratic Party. Until very recently, the party failed to take the recall effort seriously, and efforts to mobilize voters were pretty much non-existent in heavily Democratic parts of the state. This situation opens the possibility of low voter turnout, confusion over how the recall process works, for example, you vote no if you want to keep Governor Newsom and yes to recall him, and that many may not vote, assuming recall to be the unlikely outcome. But concerns did begin to rise in the past 30 to 45 days. Both President Biden and Vice President Harris are actively campaigning against the recall effort, as are many in Hollywood. And last month alone, the governor spent $36 million to fight against the recall and to attack those on the ballot to replace him should the recall vote go against the incumbent. Fear that the recall could succeed is also likely what has led the governor's fight against the recall to hire 900 paid staff members and to use tens of thousands of volunteers to try to steer voters against the recall. The governor is so desperate to paint the alternatives to his administration incorrectly that even the Associated Press said Governor Newsom 
quote, is taking liberties with broad brush strokes that distort his opponent's positions, end quote. Perhaps most startling about the governor's fight for his position is that it is a fight at all. California is consistently blue. It votes overwhelmingly Democrat. And that there is any concern on his part of a successful recall is a sign that the left may not only be focused on this election, but on what the fact is that it's even concerning means for the elections for 2022. Is this recall election even really about Governor Gavin Newsom? The answer is yes for some and no for others. A loss in this election is a clear sign of lack of confidence in the left, not just in Governor Newsom, and it may signal what is to come in the midterm elections next year. But the election may mean more and mean more earlier. Concerns have been circulating as to the health and whereabouts of 88-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein of California. If she is indeed in ill health and unable to complete her current term, the governor of California would replace her. If Gavin Newsom is recalled, that governor is likely to be a Republican, and her replacement would then be a Republican. Also of concern to the left is the loss of a House seat in California. For the first time since achieving statehood in 1849, the state lost people, and with that migration of residents came loss of one of the House seats. And it appears it will be a Democratic seat that is lost, in large part because most House seats from the state are generally held by Democrats, and it would take quite the finagling to essentially eliminate any of the small handful of Republican districts. The recall election is surprisingly competitive. When begun, when begun, it was presumed by many, on both sides of the political spectrum, that there was no real chance of removing Governor Newsom. But with the resurgence of COVID, the disaster in Afghanistan, less than glowing economic reports, and more, the dissatisfaction the country has with all of its current leaders could carry over to this election, or, even if unsuccessful, could at least help explain why the recall is a real battle and does not have a foregone conclusion. That a Republican could even be a contender for holding statewide office in California at this point, less than a year after the Democrat wins in the 2020 election, demonstrates the swiftness with which voters can change their minds on who should govern and on which party will put the country on the right path. But this kind of upheaval in California is a real rallying cry for Republicans and a warning sign for Democrats. And it cannot be overlooked that this is all occurring in the home state of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. The success already achieved by those seeking recall gathering enough validated signatures for the election to take place and building more support for the effort than was expected, may also signal where Republicans and Democrats can still come together, and that is in the exhaustion felt by all of us with the government's less than successful actions during the COVID-19 pandemic. Though there are party lines that may indicate one's likelihood to support or deride mask mandates or to favor or disfavor vaccine mandates or lockdowns or social distancing requirements, what Californians do appear to be tired of as is the entire country, is the lack of leadership and the fact that closing down common man's activities is the, is the response, while our elected officials go about their daily lives basically unchanged. The leadership, or lack of it, that has left us with ever-changing claims about the virus and the science behind it and the efforts to combat it have most certainly engendered an overall distrust in government. A distrust that may work against any incumbent, and for those who have not yet cast a vote on the recall, whether rising case numbers lead to a return to a shutdown of the economy, or whether the end to federal unemployment benefits, or whether a return to schools, whether that return is or is not successful, could all play parts in the outcome of this recall election. So what will the results of this election really mean? It's hard to say now, and it will likely be hard to say even after the results are known. In part, this is because California is unique, 
and in part is it because voters' memories are short, and each election often has more to do with the most recent news stories than what occurred during a given official's full term. It can also be detrimental to rely on special elections, like this recall, for signs of any future trends. The election takes place in September, in a non-election year. It isn't a normal election year or election month. When begun, it was a foregone conclusion that Governor Newsom would survive the recall. Whether voters have followed the change in that presumption and know whether it's important for them to vote or not is unclear. This recall election could also shine a spotlight on voting procedures. The state mailed ballots to all registered voters and provided a print-at-home option for them as well. Aside from the risks of fraud that exist with mailed ballots, without true confirmation whether the recipient is actually the eligible voter, and where ballots that can be printed, completed, and mails from, from one's home exist, a recall election like this is ripe for voter confusion and voter fraud. Since a no vote is actually a vote no on the recall, but to keep the current governor, and a yes vote is the opposite, concerns also exist that voters may vote opposite to their true intent. With all the issues surrounding recent elections and state laws that have passed or are pending to reform voting laws, it can be expected that a lot of people will be watching what issues are encountered as a part of the voting process in the California recall election. As always, thank you for listening. The outcome of the recall election challenging Governor Gavin Newsom is an interesting political event. Though the concept of recalling our elected officials dates back to before the founding of the nation, it is not a process used often, and when it is, especially on the state level, it cannot be viewed as anything other than a clear and serious indication that the people are not happy with their government. In a state that has rarely elected a Republican to state office, that support for the recall ever reached levels that threatened, and still could, to end with a Republican governor in the country's largest state, is indicative that the average American is not satisfied with a full left march toward more and more government control. Whether the outcome of September 14th is indicative of what the future holds is less clear, but it is worth watching. Unfortunately, it may be that we have come to a place where Alexis de Tocqueville's observation is hard to ignore. He said, There are many men of principle in both parties in America, but there is no party of principle. At this point, I think there are fewer and fewer men of principle. Whether either party is capable of actual principle is yet to be determined and the next months and years will be a real test of whether American principles truly guide those we elect and the parties that organize them. Next week, I will discuss why America is exceptional, what separates it from other countries, and how the allegations being levied against it now, most notably from within, expose a clear ignorance or intentional disregard for the facts of how life is truly better in America. The United States is not flawless, but there is a reason so many immigrants arrive on our shores and at our borders, seeking both legal and illegal entry from all other parts of the world. I can assure you they are not making this move for a lesser life, but for a better one. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solace Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2021.